In this second installment of our podcast on aesthetics in the LGBTQ community, Dr. Samanek addresses the importance of recognizing gender fluidity and understanding what the patient wants and not what clinicians think the patient needs. Managing patient expectations is a large part of ensuring patient satisfaction. I think as members of the aesthetic community, uh, and you know, that's my main job is aesthetics, whether it's facial plastic surgery or whether it's sort of injectables that is helping to improve the, the shape of the face or um, you know, related to that. But it brings to the point of gender fluidity. And gender fluidity is something that refers to a change over time in a person's gender expression or their identity. And in some cases, it may be both. So what I mean by that is sort of the outward expression, whether someone feels more feminine, they may carry some, some outward expressive feminine characteristics. So maybe lipstick or longer hair, um, but not necessarily identity. They may still identify as a male. So it doesn't always go hand in hand. And I think it's important during the consultation process when you're speaking to somebody to find out ultimately what their goals are, because not everyone is going to sit in your chair and want to be thrown into a left side male aesthetic or right sided female aesthetic. They may be a hybrid. They may embrace certain characteristics of femininity on their face or body, and they may embrace some other masculine characteristics. So finding out where they're at is really important at expectation management because like it or not we do play a large role whether it's surgically or non-surgically in shaping the face and body depending on what we're doing and and what our role is and understanding those unique characteristics of both genders is essential because you may follow someone over the course of several years and their gender fluidity may fluctuate over time between visits you may see them and they may come one time and they may want their lips done just for instance and they may want someone that identifies as a male he may want some fuller lips because he likes a little bit of a larger lip granted we're always trying to balance facial proportions so that's a that's kind of goes without saying however the next visit this individual may want sort of a masculinizing, stronger jawline. And expectation management is really huge when it comes to this, because you really want to understand what they are looking for, not what you think they should be getting done. Dr. Samanek explains his approach to visualizing the face and how this aids in recognizing and creating the individualized facial characteristics patients desire. I've been very privileged over the course of probably now uh, seven or eight years to uh, have been asked to write several chapters relating to gender-related facial analysis. And I've worked very closely with illustrators that have really helped me to draw out what we really see as generalized characteristics of the male and female aesthetic. And so what I 
do sort of subconsciously now, just because all I do is work on the face and I'm sort of scanning the face anyway. And I have such an inherent understanding of this, but I do understand that for people that really don't deal with this on a daily basis, it is breaking the face down into thirds, which is not unusual when we talk about facial analysis, facial proportions, etc. But I broke it down into thirds to just because I like to compartmentalize things in life in general. And I think that really helps me understand and clearly delineate certain areas of the face. So for instance, understanding masculinizing, feminizing characteristics, starting in the upper third, there's some really key characteristics that do set males and females apart. I think one of the main things is the superorbital bossing, that sort of fullness that males typically have right above their brow, which gives a, a little bit of like a heavier brow appearance and usually gives a little bit of a heavier upper eyelid appearance. And what you don't see in females is that fullness there. You see a much flatter contour, which gives them a smoother, more convex contour to their forehead. And their brows sit very differently in that area of the face because of that. But it also, the, the lateral brow in females is a little bit more elevated. It's, it's tapered uh, laterally. And that's a very feminizing type of characteristic. I really think that comes into play, quite honestly, when we're talking about doing neuromodulators around the eyes, because females can tolerate higher doses, in my opinion, of neuromodulators around the eyes. Because if you fully get rid of the crow's feet, what do you do with that orbicularis muscle? You're really freeing it up. And so what is that going to do to the brow? because the orbicularis is the, the main depressor of the brow. It's gonna lift that brow a little bit and it's gonna open their eyes. Now, you don't necessarily want that in your male patients because a flatter, heavier brow is a little bit more of a masculinizing and quite frankly, a sexier characteristic in a male face because that's gonna give them a little bit of a heavier upper eyelid, a little fuller, we'll call it, because it's not always just heavy. Uh, it's not so much skin, it's just the fullness to that region. So I think those are the main differentiators, if you will, in the upper third of the face. Um, when we go to the middle third of the face, I think this is so key when you're looking at before and afters of someone that may want to feminize, masculinize, etc. because it's all about the cheekbones and that zygomatic prominence. And... When you're looking at a face on the frontal view, you can really appreciate in the male face that that interzygomatic width is about the same as the mandibular width. So the same width as their jawline and the frontal view, um, because you don't want cheeks that are really being volumized superiorly, because that's a very feminizing characteristic. So larger, fuller cheek that it kind of extends the temple region tends to be very feminizing and gives that, that youthful but feminizing V-shaped appearance to the face. So where the zygomatic prominence is in a male is pretty much the same in a female. It's just how we build on it and what we do to the male face. So most males 
will benefit from a little volume medially to this with a little bit of augmentation to the zygomatic prominence. Whereas in females, we're really looking to build up superior to feminize them. I see this all the time with patients that come in for the first time to me. I start exploring what their goals are, uh, seeing sort of like where the gender fluidity is. And I see that they've been treated sort of like a puzzle piece and they've been thrown into this exact sort of template of what someone thought they should have delivered to them because they learned this in an injectable course uh, over a weekend. And that's what they thought would benefit, they benefit from. But really what it comes down to is, as I said before, the overall aesthetic that they're going for. As we go towards the lower third of the face, I think this is huge for really differentiating a male from a female face and particularly the jawline. The jawline is really everything for so many reasons. It exudes confidence. So a stronger jawline is capable of being had in both males and females, but it's how we build that jawline and the softness of the angles while maintaining the strength to it that it's really going to tell you or give it away that it's a more masculinized or feminizing face. So when you look at sort of the lateral view of a face and you look at that angle, that mandibular angle all you know in the back, males tend to have more of that acute, that 90 degree angle in the back that's very sharp. And in addition to the musculature in the face, the masseter muscles, which may be a little bit larger in them, that gives a little bit more definition. And that is a very masculinizing characteristic. Whereas when you look at a female face, it's a little bit of a softer curve in that, in that mandibular region. So it's a little bit more obtuse, if you will, in terms of how you're building up that jawline or how they may have their jawline in general. And also the chin. The chin can be a very dominating characteristic of the lower face. And in males, particularly on that frontal view, when you're kind of looking at two-dimensional uh, view of them on, on the front, they have a much more square chin. So the last thing you want to do is do chin filler on someone that identifies as female. They like some feminine characteristics where you're going to give them projection, but give them a square chin because that's going to masculinize their face and they are not going to like that. So you're going to want to taper their filler if that's your choice for augmentation, more centrally. So it gives a little bit more augmentation in that manner. All those really come together to create a much more cohesive appearance, depending on what the ultimate goals are uh, for the patients. And I will tell you, when you are able to successfully treat this patient population, it, I definitely don't take it for granted because they are very grateful that someone is just listening to them. And all too commonly, depending on sort of where they're at in their journey or where they're at in life, they have felt that someone just wasn't listening to them, whether it's family members, professionally, personally, et cetera. And so to be able to, number one, deliver results that they're satisfied with, but to also just be someone that just sat and listened to them is a real honor a lot of the time. And uh, like I said, I definitely don't take it for granted.
The social issues that surround his community of patients are an area of particular interest and concern for Dr. Samanek. Here, he shares with us the specific challenges patients may face and how a clinician can best help them. Dr. Samanek draws from his own experiences and their impact on his evolution as a care provider. In talking about gender-affirming care, I would be remiss not to go into the social issues that surround this community, this patient population. And the main social issue that really is fairly well documented is body dysmorphia. And there's been numerous studies that have been done. Uh, I read one particularly that was done at Mass General, which looked at gay men specifically and found a 32% prevalence rate of body dissatisfaction among gay men which within any population to have almost one third of the population have some form of body dissatisfaction is huge. Now, in addition to body dissatisfaction, uh, eating disorders play a role. They play a very important role in the body dysmorphia that someone may have. And the National Eating Disorder Association did a study and even though gay males are thought to only represent 5% of the total male population, um, among males who have eating disorders, 42% identify as gay. So that is a huge disproportion of people that not only have body dissatisfaction, potential body dysmorphia, but also compounded with eating disorders. So these social issues absolutely play a role in terms of how we're going to approach this patient and potentially where the conversation is going to go. Because during the consultation process, I think this is probably the biggest point. You know, you've got them in the door, you've gotten some inclusivity, non-judgment with your staff, with your electronic medical record, with their intake, et cetera. But where the real work goes in is when you're talking to them during the, during the consultation. Because not only is gender fluidity coming up, it's expectation management. And for better or worse, gay men have become the new face for body dysmorphia in many uh, published uh, studies. And I read this book, I've shared this book with many people because I do think it's a really important book to talk about. It's called The Velvet Rage. And it's by an author uh, named Alan Downs. He is a PhD. And he shares his experience growing up as a gay male. But he also goes a little bit deeper into some of the theories that attempt to explain gay men's complicated relationship with their bodies. And um, he has a very interesting theory that discusses the milieu where you're told as a young boy, that you don't measure up to masculine ideals that are set. So you're not manly enough, you're not this, you're not that. And they feel that they need to overcompensate to hold on to other people's affections, which I thought was so interesting when I read it. And so with that theory in mind, he discusses the role that shame-based trauma plays in how gay men construct their sense of self. And so many gay men have attempted to hold on to these affections through efforts to perfect their bodies. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating. 
And I've spoken to many of my uh, gay friends within the community, gay patients, and that's honestly resonated with many of them. And as we know, rejection for sure creates a thirst for acceptance. And so the way that they're able to do that is controlling their body. And that's what really leads a lot of the time to high rates of body dissatisfaction. Going back to the consultation, understanding this, that there is a higher prevalence of body dysmorphia should really lead you to spend more time on expectation management, understanding the motivations of the visit, and moving forward, setting very clear expectations for not only the treatment that you may be doing, whether that is surgically or non-surgically, but also the expected results, because being transparent with them is, I think, one of the most important factors in delivering overall patient success when it comes to this. Now, there are times where it is clear to me that the patient doesn't have realistic expectations. And again, this doesn't just mean it's only in this community. I don't mean to exclude everyone else because certainly there are plenty of people that identify as heterosexual that have unrealistic expectations. My point of going into this though, is that it's a much higher prevalence within this particular patient population and community. And so having a slight heightened awareness of this is really key. Going back to the point of if someone doesn't have realistic expectations, there's a couple ways that you can navigate this. And I have a, a psychologist within my professional office building. So we're in kind of downtown DC. We are in a building with multiple physicians and specialties. And I'm fortunate enough to have somebody within the building that specifically focuses on body dysmorphia. So she is readily available. I will tell you though, that as many times as I give her name out, uh, the amount of follow-up with her is really low. And it has nothing to do with her skill set or her approachability. It has to deal with the fact that many patients, they're just not quite ready to hear it. And that's okay because ultimately you identifying this as a potential obstacle in delivering some of the best care that you can provide for this patient is ultimately going to save you and your relationship with them. A lot of these people are just in denial and they'll shop around to find somebody that will give them what they want. I feel like I've been burned a few times by not, by kind of just like overlooking it basically. And then ultimately seeing someone having an exaggerated reaction to what was really going on. Just personally within my practice, I've absolutely had an evolution uh, with how I approach and manage expectations. Because I do think early on in my career, even though I've always sort of carried the ideals of inclusivity, non-judgment, and the things that I really, uh, that really has increased the members of the community seeking me out because of that, I have at times not been the greatest about managing expectations, specifically with this patient population and members of this community, because I sort of overlooked the fact that there might be some underlying higher prevalence of body dysmorphia. And 
I do absolutely see what the statistics show is very similar to what I see in my practice. And I do feel that in the past, when I haven't managed those expectations, I've seen the manifestation of this dysmorphia where the patient is really reacting and experiencing symptoms that are really out of proportion to what's going on. And I think that's a really good indicator that there is something underlying that this small little thing that they may be complaining about isn't ruining their life, but in their mind it is. And kind of clarifying expectations preoperatively or pre-treatment could have avoided those situations from happening in the first place. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Aesthetics, the podcast. We thank Dr. Michael Salmanak for his insights into the unique social issues faced by his LGBTQ patient population and his advice as to how to help his patients achieve the best aesthetic results. You can find future editions at modernaesthetics.com or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.